welcome pudding people to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. We are your hosts, Ken Seymour and Richard Geiger. How are you, Richard? I'm doing fantastic. And yourself? I am as good as could possibly be the case in the current environment that we live in. And uh, no, actually, I'm doing great. I, I can't. There's nothing to complain about at the moment. Uh, give me, you know, a few minutes, and that could change. But we are excited today. We have a fantastic guest to bring to you nice pudding people out there. We have actor, producer, director, magician, martial artist, man about the world, Mr. Richard Manley. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's, going to be exciting. I have a lot to tell you. Well, that that's that's great because I always prefer to listen than to talk, just because I'm lazy by nature. Uh, <laughs> so, let's start with with the basics. I, I I normally like to go a little chronological with this, but I want to get kind of the the cool stuff uh, that's coming up. You know, started first. You've got a new television show coming out on Tubi here very shortly. Um, it's it's magic and it's culture and it's travel what what is this and what are you what are you trying to accomplish here so the um yeah the show is i mean there's a lot of different components to it um but ideally it started with my grandfather who was um he was the inspiration but he traveled around the world as a surgeon um he was uh, he lived in boston massachusetts and that's where his practice was and he worked there um, but in the 40s, they taught surgeons how to be better with their hands. So they taught them sleight of hand and magic. So he learned all of that, which made him a better surgeon. But he was also fascinated by other cultures and indigenous people who um, who he visited that so he could also get uh, a better understanding of their medicinal practices, like in the Amazon, um, where there was uh, herbs, and he met shamans there. And then in Tibet... Um, healing practices of meditation and uh, breathing practices. So he went around and he met these people. And then he was also just an avid adventurer. He'd climb mountains. He would do all these crazy things. But he kept a journal and a a record of all these places that he went. And so I developed the show based on this travel journal that he left me after he passed. And he's the one that taught me magic when I was 10 years old. So I said to myself, okay, well, I could visit all these places that – in this journal it's basically like a roadmap and then from there uh figure out what he was trying to learn and and see the world through my own eyes uh opposed to you know what he saw and so i visited these these places we're starting to shoot these episodes peru is the first one and i got to meet the shamans in the amazon and a tribe there and then we went up to see the quechua and in the andes and um it's just been a great experience of of just getting to, to meet these cultures and learn about how there's an integration within all of them. You know, you have tribes in Africa like the Himba um, in Ethiopia and Omo Valley, and then you have tribes in the Amazon, but their their way of thinking, their belief system and traditions, their stories are different, but there's a lot of similarities in them. And so part of the show is me using my magic to kind of bridge that gap uh, for a language barrier and, um, tr- uh, you know, just a barrier of the West versus other, you know, not versus, but, you know, compared to other cultures. And um, the magic really helps them to kind of be like, whoa, wow, this is this is amazing. Let's share something with him about us. And um, it's just been a, a great experience. And I, I hope when you guys watch this that, uh, you know, you'll get to see that, too. 
in, in all of it. It sounds pretty fascinating. When I when I heard about it, it it's it kind of kind of combines a, a lot of things that make human interaction very interesting, and discovery is a big part of that. That's that's a, a key a key aspect to magic, but it's also a key aspect to, you know, a lot of different things. One thing that occurred to me though, I mean, you've got this roadmap, you've got the diary and you've, you've got, you've got some, you know, you've got some help. Did you have to have some local support to kind of help bridge even further? Cause I can, I can expect with the, the language and the dialects and, and the drastic, well, I don't know if it's drastic differences, but I would expect sometimes in the behavioral aspect, it would be a little difficult to interact in the way that you maybe would want to. Yeah. Um, different, uh, it's interesting because different cultures have a different take on magic too. So, um, we do hire fixers and different people in the country guides that will come with us because some areas, you know, you need to have someone who can speak the language just because you can't just walk into a community and start doing magic. You know, uh, it just, it, they get freaked out, you know, who is this person, you know, and, and what are they doing? So it's good to have somebody who's there who can communicate and say, okay, this is an individual who's going to show you something. Um, but also to kind of, make them aware that what I'm doing isn't, uh, you know, real magic because, you know, some tribes and, uh, and, and communities, especially in Papua New Guinea or Indonesia, they, they're very, um, they believe in real magic. So when you come in and you do something like that, uh, it's, uh, to them, it, it's, it's real. And so it, it could be in many cases dangerous, mm. uh, for me and other people, if they consider that as, as something that's, that's not good. Um, so we always make sure that we, we take those uh, precautions. We bring people with us who can, you know, kind of say, okay, this is just for show, but um, he's trying to do it to entertain you and, and I hope you, you have a good time, you know? So, yeah. I'm curious about the, the logistics behind all of this in a certain sense where this, this is a large undertaking, right? There's a lot of, a lot of money involved. There's a lot of travel to different countries, a lot of clearances to get when going through all these countries. So how did that process all the way back at the beginning start with getting enough money or getting the approval to do this show? So I, um, my business partner who I work with, um, because I have a production company here in, in Los Angeles, um, he handles most of funding. He's an accountant um, and he, he handles a lot of the funding aspects. But um, before even the funding starts, I do a massive amount of research. Um, I, I mean, my coffee tables are full of books and, you know, my bedroom is books sprawled all over the floor. You know, so I read a lot about uh, the culture, the area, the travel uh, history, you know, different uh, individuals throughout history that have traveled there. Just so I get a real clear understanding of where I'm going. And um, then I just, I have maps. So I, I basically go through the maps. I look at, you know, all the places that, that of interest to me, uh, research the different people that are there. And then once I get a good understanding of where the journey is going to be, um, and a lot of it's based on, you know, reviewing my grandfather's journal as well. Okay, he went here, he went here. So how can we go there, but make it interesting uh, to go there along the way? So what, what, where can we visit along the way that's, that's interesting? And then I'll look at the adventure activities, the things we can do, uh, the rock climbing, the either scuba diving or whitewater kayaking, um, flying planes or anything like that, anything adventure oriented to get there. Um, 
and so I'll, I'll make lists. So I'll do all this. And then I present it to my, my business partner. We say, okay, this is how much this is going to cost this, this and that. And we end up, you know, he, he goes to people who he has that, that are interested in, in environmental conservation, um, indigenous cultures, and uh, basically raising the money based on the idea that this is something that is not only an adventure where it's entertaining for people, but there's a message in it that it's about, uh, like I said, cultural integration, where you can you can see the similarities in all these these people, but also how the modern world is affecting them, which is very important because you know some of the tribes in Africa, you have people coming to visit them, but. In a way, it's it's kind of sad because it's kind of like uh, a zoo because you pay to see them, but you don't really get to really enjoy or appreciate who they are as people because you're just paying to see them, take a photo, and this and that. But I think it's it's very important for uh, tourists and, and people who are traveling to these countries to understand that these are people and their ways of life are being threatened by um by the modern world and in, in, um, building and cutting down forests and all this is pushing their land out. So these are important uh, topics to discuss, which are in the show. And um, a lot of the people we've approached for funding and all this are very interested in this, this kind of, these kind of things as well. So uh, we have a lot of support in that. That, uh, that's, that sounds like a, a massive undertaking, but something really fulfilling. So, yeah. So you say, uh, okay, I, I got to throw back just a little bit. I, this is the way I am. Scatterbrains, got to go all over the place. You talked about learning a little bit from, or learning learning from your grandfather, the, the, the love for magic and that it was the uh, prestidigitation and uh, the finger dexterity for his work. Did he take that love to not just kind of up close and personal magic, but also stage magic? Is that where you got kind of some of your interest there? Or did you kind of get the love for that just from what you learned and just kind of took the ball and ran with it? Yeah, he, um, he was more um, sleight of hand. So he, he did a lot of card tricks. Uh, he would do things with coins too. So he was very good at that. And um the stage magic element, um, I, I was fascinated with it. it. The smaller stuff that he did kind of piqued my interest in the bigger stuff. So I watched different magic shows um, that were that were on TV where they'd be doing big stage illusions. And I was interested in that. But for me, the intimacy of doing a trick in front of a small group of people, or even if it's a large group of people, uh, you know, some of the places, you know, in Egypt and other countries, there are large groups of people. Um, circled around me. And I think for me, that's on a personal level, it's more challenging because you have to manage a large crowd or a small group of people. And particularly uh, the psychology of it and the sociology of it, where, where group think is happening, where people are looking, eyeballs are looking, you want to make sure you're constantly engaging with people and um, while doing the sleight of hand. So it's it's more rewarding for me as a magician to, to perform where I know I have to manage a bunch of different things. And so it's very, it's very, it's fun, but also I like the intimate setting where people can be right there and, and see what's going on rather than sitting in seats and watching a big stage show. I just never, there was always a disconnect for me and it was always more of a performance rather than an engaging whole. And so I got into some of the bigger stage stuff and I would show my family and my mother and my grandmother, when um, I came up with these things, I had two, I have two brothers and I would like dupe them into doing, uh, being the assistant. 
and jumping in the box and chaining them up and then making them disappear and appear behind them. Um, but, uh, but that didn't last long. It was a, it was a phase and, and I just always went back to card stuff, David Blaine, uh, mad street magic, uh, Chris Angel street magic, where it was just all very, just right there. You took ordinary objects and you did extraordinary things with them. And that's what I like. Well, and to that point, uh, here's, here's the real question that I have, uh, kind of why I asked the, the first one there. Um, the experience of witnessing magic performance, uh, whether it's stage magic or personal in person is often drastically different than seeing it on a television program. So you, you lose something a lot of times when it's transitioning between the two mediums. How did you approach the process of editing or putting the, putting the work together in such a way so that you would be able to preserve the, the effect, the, um, impact that you wanted your magic to have in the show that's uh that was difficult because especially when we're traveling um we had a small crew when we were in peru which is our first episode and we had two cameras and then we had uh someone one of our team members actually was going to use was using a gopro because i strongly recommended we should have at least three or four cameras because when you're shooting you want to do the trick and you want to capture as much of it organically as you can. So, you know, if I'm doing a, a, a trick for somebody or an illusion or an effect, um, you want to have a camera that has a wide shot so you're seeing everything. Uh, you want to have one camera designated to just the hands so you're seeing the hands. And then you want to have one camera for the reactions. And then you can have another camera that's kind of, you know, going back and forth to everything, which is an added bonus. Um, but uh, we... It, it was difficult because we were very limited and we were on the go a lot. So we were stuck a lot of times with two cameras. So I, I oftentimes had to be doing the, the trick and, and tell the camera team, okay, look, so we're here, we're in the mountains. We had to climb up here. We obviously, we didn't have, we had to call a lot of gear. So, you know, we're very light on our, on our equipment. And um, so as I'm doing the trick, I need you to watch. I'll, I'll normally rehearse it with them and say, okay, this is the moment where I need you to see their face. It's very important that we see uh, the reaction to the trick uh, because that's the biggest thing. You want to see how people react to what you're showing them. Um, and there were moments where he, the, one of the camera guys was shooting it and he was staying on my hands and I had to kind of look at him and say, <laughs> get the faces, get the faces, you know, and, and I'm like here and he was like, oh, oh, you know. So um, it, it was an interesting experience just because of the logistics of, of this rugged travel. But uh but we got it. We got it. <laughs> now, did you have any, I don't know if I'll call them uh, uh, an idol or maybe a person of reference, because uh, you'd mentioned David Blaine and Chris Angel, and of course your, your grandfather. Did you have people growing up who you based your magic off of or who inspired you to do things or, or, or grow off of what you had seen from them? Um, I think... Uh... Really, I read a lot of books. So there's a lot of books on magic that I read too. And um, I, I watched David Blaine. I watched Chris Angel. But a lot of uh, both of them, you know, they, they have characters that they portray. You know, David Blaine is more, it's a, sh a shaman type of character who he's very intense in his magic. And then Chris Angel has a character who is very shock oriented in his magic. I mean, they're very much them, but they're, 
their character to it. So for me, in my magic, I never created the uh, illusion or the idea of that I had real magic or real power. So I think some of the people that interested me the most were the people that you don't really see on TV because there's a lot of um, indie magicians, I guess you'd call them, that create magic effects that you watch them and they're basically, they're, they're more skill oriented. They'll do a lot of card flourishes and they'll do a lot of sleight of hand, but nothing is ever um, implied that they have real magic. It's entertaining. And so I enjoyed that organic uh, presentation of magic where you're just kind of yourself. You do the magic trick, you do it. We all know it's a trick. We're not trying to tell anybody we have real magical abilities. And um, so I think for me, I always just kind of stayed true to who I was. If if I was going to mess up a trick, and, and that happened quite often when I was uh, going through my, I guess, magic career of learning, I would go through bars and I worked as a server and I worked as a bartender. And a lot of the times the magic tricks would just mess up and I, I wouldn't get them correct. But as you do more magic, you always have this backup upon backup upon backup because you realize that the audience never really knows what you're doing. So if you're doing a trick for somebody and it's just this fun thing and you mess up, you turn, turn that into part of the, the, the trick and then you continue on a different line. So there's all these different paths to get to the end result of entertaining someone. But, um, but you have to be quick on your feet. And that's something, I guess, it just happens through repetition, from doing it at bars, from doing it at restaurants, of learning that messing up is okay. It's part of your personality. And again, we don't have to present the fact that we have real powers. It's, it's entertaining. So you can make a joke about it. You can make light about it um, as long as it's entertaining people. So that's kind of where I developed my style was just trial and error. Magicians people don't really see and, um, you know, just being myself, really. Side question. Mm -hmm. uh, as you were working as a bartender, uh, what was the most difficult drink for you to make? Well, that, that's the problem. I, I got fired as a bartender because <laughs> the, the problem was uh, I didn't last very long. I was doing more magic for people than making drinks. So all the other bartenders, and there was you know two others that were taking over for me as I was doing tricks for everyone. And I, I remember the manager would say, look, Rich, I would fire you if it wasn't for the fact that you bring in customers for your magic. So I'll keep you on, but... Uh, but, um, you know, you need to make more drinks. So eventually he had to let me go. But that's another that, that probably leads into another subject where for me, I always had a, a tough time uh, with, with whenever I, I had a job, maintaining that job because I always wanted to entertain or do some sort of creative thing to, for the people that I was around. So uh, to answer your question, I don't even know what the hardest drink was because I, I rarely made them. So Didn't make them. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, maintaining is important. I mean, there's maybe nothing more important than maintaining what is important, that core of what you're developing for yourself. And to that end, I want to remind everybody out there to uh, visit us on social media. <laughs> we are at Real Pudding Guys on Twitter. We are at Pudding Guys on Facebook and on Instagram. And we are at Pudding Guys on Patreon, where for only $1 a month, you can support us as we get new equipment to sound better, to look better, to do better, to be better. But uh, back on to our regularly scheduled program. Uh, <laughs> smooth transition. Yes. Did that work for you? That works. That works. <laughs> um, so, okay. 
and I had to wonder about this too, a little, little snippet in, in your, in your history. Um, and I, you know, you got some of this love of cultures and magic, uh, from family, but I also saw that you studied martial arts. Um, a lot of times, uh, love of other cultures can often come from that because the, truthfully speaking, there really isn't an American martial arts to, to really not technically, although the one that you studied is maybe the closest. How did you get into that? Yeah. So I, I think again, like you said, um, my fascination with travel and other cultures and other places uh, kind of led me into martial arts. And I had always been a big fan of Indiana Jones. So I, I, I loved the Indiana Jones movies. And I always thought growing up that I could be that and be running away from, you know, bad guys after stealing a, uh, a sacred object. And then I realized maybe it's not as fun as it looks in the movies to actually be doing that. But um uh, but yeah, so I started martial arts when I was about 12 years old and it was another thing where whatever I do, I, I tend to get very intensely, um, involved in, and, and I like to take it 100%. So the martial arts thing started, um, when I saw Bruce Lee movies, Jackie Chan movies, and, uh, I was very much interested in Kung Fu, but I didn't realize it was Kung Fu at the time because I was still learning. And um, so I just wanted to get any kind of martial arts experience that I could. So I joined a local school, which was Kempo Karate, um, which again, yeah, is probably a more Americanized version of um, Japanese karate. And um, so I started learning there and within four years, three, three years actually, I was practicing a lot. It was like three and a half. I got my black belt and I started teaching there. So I taught there. I was very close with my uh, sensei. Um, and uh, we, we actually then from there started traveling to New York because I said to him, you know, this, the karate is great, but it's very stiff. It's very, I want to be like uh, Jet Li, Jackie Chan, where these guys are moving and it's fluid and it's, you know, it's beautiful and powerful and all these stances and everything. And so he was like, well, you know, that's more Kung Fu. And, and so I started researching all that. And um, when we went to New York, I met up with uh, Shifu, uh, it, uh, uh, it was It Poi who was of the Ip Man lineage, um, three down from, I think four down from the Ip, Ip Man lineage. And so I learned Wing Chun and I got my black sash in Wing Chun, then started training Shaolin Kung Fu with the Shaolin monks who came over from a uh, from China with, uh, they were a performance team and they came to Flushing. And I, that was when I was just, I, I fell in love with it again because that was the style of Kung Fu and the, the Shaolin style, which is what I really wanted to do. So I would train eight hours a day in my, my teen years old, like 17, 18, 19, I would train eight hours a day and just wanted to just absorb as much of it as I could. And so really during that time, it was magic and, and Shaolin martial arts that was my core focus and passion um, of, of what I was doing. And that really did lead into a lot of other things. I always say that martial arts is, um, a, it's, it's more of like a big body uh like magic, I would say, is, is small muscle skills where martial arts is big muscle skills and big learning and big movements where magic and martial arts have a similarity in that it takes a, a diligent mind. It takes determination um, and persistence to get better at it. But um, uh, the, the martial arts for me was something that that was an ongoing thing that helped me never give up on whatever I was doing, whether it was rock climbing, which I got into and then. Uh, these other things like like scuba diving or, or uh, other activities like uh, extreme mountain biking where I just 
I always remember the martial arts and, and the teachings of, you know, stay focused, um, don't give up, and and no matter what, you'll you'll get better, you'll progress. You know, so it was a it was a good experience to, to train. Well, and a lot of discipline too, discipline and practice, practice, yeah. practice. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So okay, so now now that I've I've opened the door to the martial arts, which is a a huge interest of mine, just in in kind of a, a scholarly pursuit, because ask me to do a a. a, a any sort of reverse spin kick or anything, and I'll probably fall uh, pretty easily. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've always, I've always enjoyed the the culture that created these and what it kind of resulted in in terms of an approach to yourself and how you interact in terms of um, power structures and self defense and and um, social interactions. What do you think um, in in Kenpo, um, which has gone through a lot of changes over the years and a lot of it has a very different approach to how it, it, it integrates style instead of keeping a more rigid learning pattern where this is this is how it has always been and you will learn it this way uh, instead of more of tailoring it to the individuals that come in. How do you think that maybe suited you, or do you think that is something that maybe had an effect uh, on how you approached certain things? Um, I I think when I first started Kenpo, um, yes, it was very structured. I think that helped me. That discipline helped me for the Shaolin um, because the the Kenpo, you know, I, uh, the the instructor was um, he was. French Canadian. And so he didn't have the same traditional, uh, roots as if, you know, there was like a really traditional, uh, Japanese teacher or, or whatnot. So he was more laid back about it. Uh, but yet there was still structure and the way that he approached it was he was comedic too. He was able to break the ice and, you know, not make it so serious. So there, there were people that enjoyed his presence and enjoyed, uh, training. Um, but it was still, I, I will say it was still very difficult to, to master the moves, but not as difficult as something like Shaolin or, or Kung Fu, um, where Kenpo Karate, you can, you never really master a martial art, but it if you're going to enter into a martial art and then learn other martial arts, I would say Kenpo Karate is the easiest one because the stances, the muscle um, memory, the, the flexibility is not as intensive as something like a, a Kung Fu. So I would say there's, different levels to to um, to a martial arts of where someone should start and whenever I was teaching and people wanted to learn the Shaolin I would say well you probably want to start with something like karate uh, where at least you can learn power generation which is very similar to Shao traditional Shaolin Kung Fu because a lot of the methods from Shaolin Kung Fu came uh, were actually evolved in, in, in into Kenpo uh, karate so there's a lot of Shaolin movements there but they're they're higher. They're not. They're shallower. They're not as deep uh, rooted stances. So anyone can kind of come in and, and learn it. Um, but if you want to do Shaolin Kung Fu, uh, I always say you, you want to start younger because you want to get that muscle memory of moving in very awkward positions and generating power, and you know not throwing out your back or, or blowing out your knees. It's just it's one of those things you want to start young. 
um, if you're going to do more of a northern style, I would say, shell in. Mm-hmm. Those are the high kicks. Those are the animal styles. Those are the mantis, um, which very awkward movement. And um, so it's just it's good to start that, you know, at a younger age. Well, you've got some some acting credits from a, a few films. Do you think it was your your magic? Do you think it was your martial arts that, that helped you get into the that, that acting field? Was or was it none of those? Uh, I would say it was a combination of both. Um, because the re- really, I, I started wanting to do martial arts movies uh, early. T- 20s like 20 years old 21 um when i went to college i went to a school uh, the university was radford and they offered a minor in martial arts so i went and i majored in sports and physical fitness and then minored in martial arts and i met an individual there james houston who is actually my co-host in culture shock but he was a martial arts uh, instructor and he owned a gym there where he taught um he taught uh, karate and um he, we, we met each other on campus. He was visiting. And then I started teaching some Wing Chun and some Shaolin techniques there. And he would go back and forth from Los Angeles because he was, he was a producer too, producing a TV show called Star Stunts in Action, where he, in, where he would basically go around um, seeking out stunt guys and martial artists in Hollywood um, and behind the scenes of all of that. So I got to go with him and I traveled with him to Los Angeles um, when I was in college and I learned the ins and outs of, of Hollywood there through him going to some of the parties, meeting some of the stunt guys, top stunt guys, and, and visiting some of their you know training areas. And it was that's kind of when I got the bug and I said, okay, I've got all these skills as a martial artist. I would love to jump in and be in action martial arts movies. You know, so I I basically chose to go to Los Angeles to to be an action martial arts guy. Um, and, and that was really where my love of, of acting came in. And I had always loved acting ever since I was a kid, I was always dressing up and creating characters around the house. Um, and then, you know, performing for my mother and it, it went hand in hand with the magic because I do a magic trick, but I was playing the part of a magician, you know, and, uh, when I was doing the big stage illusions, uh, for them and, uh, the same thing with martial arts, um, even though it, it embodied me, I would always dress up in my monk uniform when I was practicing outside in the, in the front yard of my parents' house. And uh, I'd dress up in a shell and monk uniform with the socks and everything. And I would, you know, be doing weapons. And, you know, the neighbors probably thought I was crazy or their child was crazy. I don't know. But, uh, but I always got very much involved in it. And um, I think that was something for me that, that really led into the acting because I could become these these individuals and these characters that that I enjoyed being because it was a part of me. And I was always fascinated by period pieces. And um, when it came to acting, I, I, I didn't like the acting where it's just modern day acting. I loved the, the, the movies and the acting where you're playing a, a character from a different time period. And uh, I think that's why one of my favorite movies was The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise because I, I love that those settings and and you know the patriot uh with mel gibson i love those period pieces where you can play somebody who you know and play in a time that that is no longer now and and maybe in a past life i don't know i was all these people and probably that's why i'm so excited about 
all these different niches and, and things that I do. You know. Now, okay, you you mentioned Last Samurai. Best uh, best character yeah. in the film. Um, I I liked. Uh, well, I liked I liked Tom Cruise's character, but I also liked uh, the the teacher as well, the samurai. Uh, uh, I forget the actor's name, uh, but, but uh, I, Wantanabe. I yes, yeah. yes, yeah, I loved him. Yeah, I was. Uh, I remember watching that film. You know, I, I, I love the 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 director, and and he he's kind of gold. Anything he touches just just works for me. But uh, the the Yujo character, just the 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 kind of the man at arms that that was the the it's like oh it's it's like the seven sam i mean that's like it's right out of some of those old movies he just kind of had that presence and that movement and it was just like oh it's so cool yeah underrated movie i feel like yeah 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 i i I love everything about filmmaking where there where you have a a score uh the music is 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 affecting everything else you know it's just an artistic piece um and so that's why i like period pieces too because you have that music element that is incorporated in the sets and everything else and it's just very beautiful uh, to me so would you say that there's also kind of a, an overlap uh, between some of your practices between magic and, and theater it's a lot of manipulating attention right uh, trying to get mm-hmm. uh, your opponent in, in martial arts to be looking where you want them to look so that you can land whatever strike you need to land uh, to pull off the trick, to be able to get the emotional impact of a scene. Same kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's almost like you're a ninja, you know, because the ninja used any kind of method to to win a fight, whereas the samurai were more honorable and it was always straight on and they were, you know, wanted to protect their honor. Whereas, you know, the ninja, they used any kind of method, any kind of magic, throwing dirt, whatever, throwing smoke bombs. And that was the way they, they won. And so I think when it comes to magic, uh, it's the same kind of thing. You're, you're trying to, um, you're trying to be a really good, a really good liar, basically, because that's what you have to do. And um, so it is an act. It is your play. You, you are an actor because you're trying to, uh, talk to somebody here and make make them feel like, like you're engaging with them so that they, they'll make eye contact with you. And in that moment, you know you can do something while they, they've got your attention. And a lot of times, you know, when there's somebody watching uh, you, so if you're talking, if I'm talking to someone over here, my left shoulder, and there's somebody on my right shoulder who's just staring at my, my hands, and I know they are. Uh, I'll talk to this person on the left and I'll say, okay. And then I'll turn to him and I say, could you actually take the car? So, so then now their attention has to look up and now I'm like, okay, or I'll make them, I'll engage with them in a way that now they have to talk to me. And so now I know everybody else. I know the weakest link is that, that, that could basically catch on to what I'm doing is the one watching me. So if you can get him to follow everyone else around, it's like a, a group think will begin to, uh, follow as well and they'll all look where I want them to look so you I always make sure to pinpoint the person who's a skeptic and that's the person you want to focus on because you get them you know all discombobulated the rest are, are most likely going to be in that trance you know when you're doing a trick it's it's a lot of psychology yeah. yeah so beyond um, culture shock is your goal to do multiple seasons of this is your goal to get more roles from future 
projects in Los Angeles or, 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 or all of the above? Um, I, I think when it comes to the, the future roles, I, I'm, I'm less concerned about that. I, I, uh, I'm, for me, I enjoy doing magic for people. I enjoy the travel and the meeting people. Um, you know, if, if other projects come out of it, then that's great. But the main goal is not to use this message as a way to get all these other projects because I'm very selective, you know, about anything I do, whether it's acting or, or any kind of charity project or anything. It, it, the message has to be there. It has to be something that, um, that speaks to me, that, that has some kind of value to it. So for this project, meeting these cultures, meeting these people, doing the magic for them, that's rewarding in, in itself for me. And also, um, I feel like it's a, it's a good message <clears throat> for, for them and for everyone else that's watching. So, um, so yeah, I think I, I, we're hoping for a second season, a third season, and, and basically just to, to continue on. You know, we have other projects we want to do that are acting projects, too, um, that I've written and that we've, that we've started production on. So, uh, you know, we, we have those to focus on, too. Get that energy going. Yeah, yeah. What, um, in your travels for this show, what is maybe one of the most surprising locations that you went to that maybe you weren't expecting the locale to be as uh, beautiful as it was, or uh, maybe you had a, a preconception about how the specific um, group of people you're going to be interacting with might behave. And it may be either was completely different or maybe it was, it was what you expected, but in a different way. What, what's something that kind of opened your eyes and just kind of gave you that, that that moment of um, awesome appreciation that you can sometimes have on these travels. Um, that's a tough one because there there's been those those been there's those moments uh, in, a, in almost every country that I've gone to. Um, uh, per, I mean, Peru was was fascinating. That's our first episode, but Peru was fascinating simply for the extreme biodiversity, you know, you, you've got the Andes and then you have the Amazon and um, just being on the Madre de Dia, the, the, the river uh, leading up to Palma Real, which is the community we went to um, deep in the Amazon, that in itself was an experience just seeing the vast, the vast lushness of the, the Amazon. And then also just the, the sad truth of a lot of it getting cut down and seeing that the hectares of land just, just chopped down. Um, but also over in Africa and Ethiopia, I never expected Ethiopia to have the, the, the landscape it did. You know, you go further, for, further north, um, close to Eritrea, and you have the Donakil Depression, which is just considered one of the most remote areas on Earth. And it, it used to be a very dangerous place um, because of Eritrea and Ethiopia were, were actually, they were battling each other and there was, you know, a war between them and tension. And so... There was a time when, you know, tourists, you know, you weren't really allowed to go or you were you, you were basically you were told not to go um, because there was kidnappings. You know, people go missing. There's, you know, all these things that could happen there. And it's also an extremely hot area. You know, you have the, a volcano there and it's just very barren, you know. And so seeing that to me was just eye opening up in the north. And then um, also just in the highlands as well of Ethiopia, where you have the the churches that are cut into uh, the mountains. And, you know, and, and, and I learned that a lot of the, 
the priests uh, would climb these mountains and um, visit these churches that are, you know, fifth century um, churches that are very, very old, cut into the, the rock formation. And that, that vista was just so beautiful. And then you go south to, to Ethiopia, and we traveled all over. But uh, you go south and you have the Omo Valley, which, um, which, you know, as you're going through the center, as you're coming down, you know, you, you see lush forests. So there's jungle, there's forest. And then you're going down to the Omo Valley region um, and you're meeting all the tribes. And that's the area that has all the, the different, um, you know, the different people. And uh, that to me, I, I think Ethiopia stood out as just a place where it was just this vast beauty I did not expect to see with so much going on, you know. Okay, so all right. See, I, I have not had the chance yet to to visit several places. I've got I've got this ever growing list of of countries that I want to go to and visit for the newbie that may want to experience a small piece of what you experience. Where would you suggest that they start? I would say a good starting point would probably be Peru um, because you can, you can get, you can get a lot in Peru safely. Um, you know, you can get um, guides in the jungle that will take you to safe places, uh, keep you safe. Really the, the most important thing is to make sure that who you're with and the company that you're with is safe. Um, and if you want, you know, you can tailor the experience, obviously, to be more adventurous, more rugged, or um, if you want it to be more like glamping, more accommodated. Um, you know, in Peru, if you're in the, the Andes region, um, in Oyate Tambo, they have a lot of uh, interesting, you know, places there. Uh, and Oyate Tambo is actually a sacred, a sacred area in, in Peru uh, near Cusco. And, um, you know, you can have some beautiful hotels with beautiful vistas there. And uh, if it's for people that just want to do a hike and see some of these structures, they can go there. If somebody wants something a little bit more rugged, uh, they can tailor the experience more to Pitamarca, which is a village with a lot of Quechua speaking um, uh, people. And you can, you can see that. You can do some rock climbing up in the, the, the mountains there or Rainbow Mountain. Um, you can challenge yourself with that or Machu Picchu. And then if you want to go, you know, into the jungle, there's, there's, um, companies that'll take you there for, for a more rugged experience where you're camping in the jungle or you're staying amongst tribes that have been contacted. So it's not as dangerous. Um, but I, I would, I would, um, say, because the second place that I went was, was Ethiopia. And that was a big one because going to places like that, it's a, you really have to do your research. Um, it's a little bit more dangerous. It's a little bit more, um, you want to make sure you're in, in great company. You want to have a travel partner with you. Um, uh, because I mean, e e when we were in Ethiopia, there was tribal warfare happening. We, there were people getting shot, you know, on the, in the Southern, um, Ethiopia. So you, you really want to be careful when you're, when you're traveling to some areas in Africa and make sure that you have something else under your belt, like going to Peru where you're, you know you're safe and you've got that, you know, you get the, that bug. You want to travel. You want to do something. But go to a place, I, I call it like a starter country, before you start going to these other places that are a little bit more rugged, a little bit more remote. You know? Was there a time in your travels where 
you legitimately felt endangered or felt that it was just not a safe situation. And, and that could be, you know, from the other people that were there or from the landscape or the situation. But was there a time where you're like, I'm not so sure about this? Um, yes. I, well, I think, yeah, there was that moment. And I, I think just because of my personality, I, I, weirdly enough, I get excited about all the, the dangers. So I think it was more people on my team that are like, this is not a good thing, Rich. <laughs> uh, we need to turn around. And I'm always the guy that says, no, we need to keep going. And I think if, if I was in a horror movie and it was a real life, I'd probably die first because I'm the guy <laughs> that's senseless and decides to go forward. But, um, there was an incident in Sri Lanka where uh, we were in the middle of uh, the Singaraja, I think, uh, the Singaraja um, rainforest. And I was with my guide. And this is another example of make sure that you do your research, because although my guide was very, um, he's a very kind, very good uh, hearted individual, but he spoke very limited English. And I had traveled to Sri Lanka from a different country and uh, I, I, it was, it was actually just on a whim. It, it wasn't, it, it was a scouting mission for the show. So we weren't actually filming. So it was just me. And uh, we had just finished filming in Namibia. And then I said to the guy, the guys were all going back to, to the States. And I said, uh, well, you know, I, I, I've got a little bit of time. We're going to shoot something in Sri Lanka. I think I'm just going to go over there. And they're like, oh, you're just going to take a flight and, and go. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm going to find, you know, uh, and this is a, I didn't do my preparation of, you know, researching. So um, there was somebody there who told me a name of a possible guide and they called him and said, okay, can you take Rich around uh, Sri Lanka? So I got in, I met him and um, he, yeah, he spoke very limited English uh, and he drove up in his Prius. He started packing things in and, you know, the one thing about him that, that I, that I knew was his staple was his just his pride in his Prius. He was like, this is my, this is my, my chariot. This is, don't you like, this is a perfect vehicle. Yes. And I was like, great. That's, that's wonderful. Uh, where are we going? You know? And, and he was always talking about his car as we were driving, like, does it, doesn't it drive nice? Doesn't it drive? And I'm like, yes, it's very nice. We're, we, we need to come up with a plan. And um, so it was, it was a battle of trying to, to, to speak with him and, and, and get him to understand where I wanted to go. And he did start taking me to a lot of tourist spots. And I said to him, uh, his name is Shintaka. And he actually stays in touch with me um, through Facebook. I think he writes me messages. And um, he said to me, I want to take you to the spots that are most beautiful. And then I said, okay, I, I want to go to places that most people don't go. Take me to remote places. I want to see the real Sri Lanka. I don't want to go to the tourist spots. So I kind of had to say no tourist, uh, you know, real Sri Lanka. And he was like, oh, oh. And then I kind of stupidly said danger, uh, dangerous, oh, no. more, uh, you know, and then he was like, he was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. We go. I, 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 I understand. And I'm like, okay. So, uh, you know, we start, we start going to these places that are a little bit off the beaten path and um we were in this one village it was outside katuga which is an adventure area where a lot of there's a lot of whitewater rafting and you know we're uh, abseiling off of waterfalls and splunking and um we got 
lost. I knew we were lost because he was asking people, he would just say, you, you wait here, sir. I, 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 one, one moment. And then I would watch him scratching his head, talking to the other guy and moving his hands a lot and trying to, and I'm like, I know we're lost. So I'm gonna, I just, it's okay. You know, I've got all my camera gear in the back and uh, it's, you know, it's, it is what it is. So he would come back and I would say, Chintaka, you, you know where we're going. He's like, oh, no, uh, one moment we, we go here, you know, and we pull up the road and he meets some other people. And I, at this point I got out of the car and we're in the jungle and there's dirt roads. And um, I mean, I wasn't scared at this point, but I remember walking over to a very uh, just rickety shack where, where people were standing by, I guess, to catch the bus or, or, or something. And I looked inside and there was a man who was past, well, he, he was hyperventilating on the floor. And there was flies around his mouth and he was, you know, uh, like frothing, uh, you know, like foam, like he was having a seizure and he was just breathing heavy. His stomach was bloated. And I looked at him and I, I said, okay, this is not good. So I, I went over, uh, to Chintaka. I said, there's, there's a man in there. Uh, I think he's, he's dying cause it was very hot and it was a very humid, you know, and I was drenched in sweat, just stepping outside. It was like a blanket, um, and uh, so Chintaka says, oh, one moment, I, I, I check. And he goes and he looks in and he says, oh, that's, uh, he said, very sad. He, he not make, we, we go. And I'm like, do we, uh, do we, do we do anything for him? He's like, no, no, we, we, we go, you know? And I'm like, uh, and so people started just watching him. And uh, so I'm walking back to the car. I said, uh, Chintaka, you know, maybe I think we should do something about this. And he's like, he's like, no, in Sri Lanka, this is the way we, we, we must go. He, he'd be okay. You know? And, uh, I was like, okay. So we got into the car and, uh, we continued on. And, uh, and in the back of my head, I said, I said to myself, Oh my God, where are we going? There's people passing out and possibly I maybe saw someone die. I don't know what's happening. And, um, eventually after talking to a bunch of different motorcyclists, we got to where we were going to go, which was um, a monastery. I wanted to meet some of the Buddhist monks, um, you know, and, and we eventually got there. He just rolled up in the, in the monastery and said, oh, this is my family home. I, I, I know, you know, I know them. I just don't know. I didn't know how to, to, to get here. So that was good. We got to meet all the, the, the children monks and, the, you know, the senior monks. And that was a good experience. But getting there, I mean, I, I just thought I, we were going to be sleeping in a, a jungle. It, it was a, it was a disaster. Little, but little, it was, it was an experience. A little dicey the experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of what uh, we deal with is uh, not going to be uh, that uh, dangerous at all. And but we like to watch things that are dangerous. Uh, we tend to talk a lot about comic books and comic book movies, or at least things that purport to be dangerous in, uh, in the fictitious sense. Are you a fan? You see you're a fan of martial arts movies. Are you a fan of comic books or all? Um, I, that's the thing I never got. I never got into comic books uh, as a kid. Actually, the only comic book that I read, which is pretty weird was Sonic the Hedgehog. I read Sonic the Hedgehog comics and that hey. was it. That was really it. You know, I, I didn't read any of the other, other comics. That's how I saw the stuff because I mean, I would think as you know, with that that martial arts background, that's like perfect for today's. This there are so many superhero films. It's like, hey, if you know some, if you can at least look like you know what you're doing uh, on the screen, you could probably get in at the very least as like Shield Agent Number Three. 
on the on the side of whatever right. it was. But uh, right. So that's I usually like to ask uh, actors that we talk to. It's like, oh, is there ever a comic book character that you would love to play on a television show or a movie? I, um, you know, it's interesting because I, like I said, I'm very interested in, in period pieces. So the 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 modern, you know, like the modern trends of movies. Uh, I, I love the movies back in the day, like the the '90s and all those. You know, I like movies even like What's Eating Gilbert Grape. The movies mm -hmm. that I'm very interested in movies that had a story about human connection to another individual. And they were very movies that back then were, were in theaters that are now going direct to DVD or, or are now in a, considered independent movies. But back then they were they were uh, movies you'd watch in a theater. So that to me, a very personal connection. Um, I, I, I like those movies. But going back to the comic book, uh, thing uh, people have said to me well you do the martial arts and you do the magic you should be uh you should be looking at gambit you know something like that and so then i was like oh wait but who is that because i didn't know the comic book <laughs> you so don't know like, remy lebeau yes i didn't you know i and so i looked uh i looked that up and i'm like oh yeah yeah no i, I okay yeah no that that's that's me i can do that you know and so uh um so yeah somebody somebody turned me on to that like oh you need to be you need to be doing doing that you need to be uh you know going out for that guy and i was like oh yeah yeah no that's that's actually a lot of what i do so i would say probably gambit would be the the uh the guy you know approved 100 percent approved <laughs> yeah well we like to throw out uh, a random question sometime pertaining to food um usually pizza related but not always uh you're from the east coast you mentioned before spending some time in in um new york are you a new york style pizza person are you maybe uh like a like a chicago style or have you discovered something now living on the west coast that is more your preference um i i love new york pizza so yeah i, I would say new york style um i get some flack from some people where you, where you have the divide of should there be pineapple on the pizza and I do like the Hawaiian pizza with the ham and the pineapple. So that's that's something I, I do like. But New York style is is something I enjoy. And when I was in Italy too, I I actually really enjoyed the way that um, traditional Italian pizza is made because it's very different. It's like a totally different thing than you know we do over here. So yeah, more of the brick oven style and the different type of crust and simplicity on top. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just a big pizza fan all around. I, I love pizza. I have to keep it, you know, if I see a slice of pizza, I'm going to want it. I have to kind of keep it at bay because I need to, I like to stay in shape for a lot of stuff I do. And if, if I could, I just eat pizza every day. So, you know, it's like my kryptonite. There are worse things. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, do you know when, your show is going to be, it's supposed to be in October, right? Do you know exactly when your show is coming out? Uh, I'm told that it'll be the second week of October. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we're going to do is we'll keep people, you know, updated on, on the release date on the website that we have, which is cultureshockmagic.com. And um, so that'll all be updated and we'll say, oh, it's releasing this date. And um, so, yeah, we'll be keeping people updated. Excellent. Excellent. I, I got to say, I, I was going to say, I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. And it will be, um, yeah, it's a 2B TV, but, uh, 
you know, re um, well, not so much reruns, but, uh, you know, you can rent the episodes on Vudu too. Um, and then I think uh, local local TV, uh, I think it'll be on that too. There's there's an app. Um, so uh, so yeah, it'll be it'll be out there for people to watch. Uh, you know, other, the episodes once they've aired. So. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I've I've really enjoyed it. Getting a chance to see a dedicated practitioner uh, and doing something that uh, can help us all. Uh, remember the, the better parts of ourselves that want to learn and know about people that we may not uh, be completely familiar with and, and enrich ourselves through that experience. I, thank you so much. Of course. No, no. Thank you, guys. This was, this was great. 